0: This is day 175 of our daily Bible reading. We'll be completing Hosea chapters 8 through 12. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for a new day of life, for refreshed mercies and grace and compassion on us. Lord, we need it, because this world is so evil and so corrupt. And Lord, you are the only one that's good. You are the only one that we can run to for true safety and refuge. Help us to see that truth today as we enter into your word, that you are the source of all goodness, that we are so wretched in our natural state, there is nothing good that comes from us. But only through you, Lord God, can we be made holy, for you have called your people to be holy. Please forgive our sins, and please bless the reading of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Put the trumpet to your lips. Like an eagle, the enemy comes against the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. They cry out to me, My God, we of Israel know you. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have appointed princes, but I did not know it. With their silver and gold they have made idols for themselves, that they might be cut off. He has rejected your calf, O Samaria, saying, My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For from Israel is even this. A craftsman made it, so it is not God. Surely the calf of Samaria will be broken to pieces.' For they sow the wind, and they reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It yields no grain. Should it yield, strangers would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. They are now among the nations, like a vessel in which no one delights. For they have gone up to Assyria, like a wild donkey, all alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Even though they hire allies among the nations, now I will gather them up, and they will begin to diminish because of the burden of the king of princes. Since Ephraim has multiplied altars for sin, they have become altars of sinning for him. Though I wrote for him ten thousand precepts of my law, they are regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial gifts... They sacrifice the flesh and eat it, but the Lord has taken no delight in them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish them for their sins. They will return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities, but I will send a fire on its cities that it may consume its palatial dwelling. Do not rejoice, O Israel, with exultation like the nations, for you have played the harlot, forsaking your God. You have loved harlots' earnings on every threshing floor. Threshing floor and winepress will not feed them, and the new wine will fail them. They will not remain in the Lord's land, but Ephraim will return to Egypt, and in Assyria they will eat unclean food. They will not pour out drink-offerings of wine to the Lord. Their sacrifices will not please Him. Their bread will be like mourners' bread. All who eat of it will be defiled. For their bread will be for themselves alone. It will not enter the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival, on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they will go because of destruction. Egypt will gather them up. Memphis will bury them. Weeds will take over their treasures of silver. Thorns will be in their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of retribution have come. Let Israel know this. The prophet is a fool. The inspired man is demented because of the grossness of your iniquity and because your hostility is so great. Ephraim was a watchman with my God. A prophet, yet the snare of a bird catcher is in all his ways, and there is only hostility in the house of his God. They have gone deep into depravity, as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity, he will punish their sins. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. But they came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame, and they became as detestable as that which they loved. As for Ephraim, their glory will fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, and no conception. Though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them until not a man is left. Yes, woe to them indeed when I depart from there. Ephraim, as I have seen, is planted in a pleasant meadow like Tyre. But Ephraim will bring out his children for slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. All their evil is at Gilgal. Indeed, I came to hate them there, because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They will bear no fruit. Even though they bear children, I will slay the precious ones of their womb. My God will cast them away, because they have not listened to him. And they will be wanderers among the nations. Israel is a luxuriant vine he produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made. The richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. Their heart is faithless. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillars. Surely now they will say, We have no king, for we do not revere the Lord. As for the king, what can he do for us? they speak mere words. With worthless oaths they make covenants, and judgment sprouts like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria will fear for the calf of Bethaven. Indeed, its people will mourn for it, and its idolatrous priests will cry out over it, over its glory, since it has departed from it. The thing itself will be carried to Assyria as tribute to king Jereb. Ephraim will be seized with shame, and Israel will be ashamed of his own counsel. Samaria will be cut off with her king, like a stick on the surface of the water. Also the high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, will be destroyed. Thorn and thistle will grow on their altars. Then they will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they stand. Will not the battle against the sons of iniquity overtake them in Gibeah? When it is my desire, I will chastise them, and the peoples will be gathered against them when they are bound for their double guilt. Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh, but I will come over her fair neck with a yoke. I will harness Ephraim. Judah will plow, Jacob will harrow for himself. Sow with a view to righteousness. Reap in accordance with kindness. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness on you. You have plowed wickedness, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your way, in your numerous warriors. Therefore, a tumult will arise among your people, and all your fortresses will be destroyed. As shaman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, when mothers were dashed in pieces with their children, thus it will be done to you at Bethel, because of your great wickedness. At dawn, the king of Israel will be completely cut off. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms. But they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws. And I bent down and fed them. They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria. He will be their king, because they refused to return to me. The sword will whirl against their cities, and will demolish their gate bars and consume them because of their counsels. So my people are bent on turning from me. Though they call them to the one on high, none at all exalts him. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me, All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar, and his sons will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt, and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. Ephraim surrounds me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. Judah is also unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is faithful. Ephraim feeds on wind, and pursues the east wind continually. He multiplies lies and violence. Moreover, he makes a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord also has a dispute with Judah, and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. And in his maturity, he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept, and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with us. Even the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his name. Therefore return to your God. Observe kindness, and justice, and wait for your God continually. A merchant, in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. And Ephraim said, Surely I have become rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors they will find in me no iniquity, which would be sin. But I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. I will make you live in tents again, as in the days of the appointed festivals. I have also spoken to the prophets and I gave numerous visions, and through the prophets I gave parables. Is there iniquity in Gilead? Surely they are worthless. In Gilgal they sacrifice bulls. Yes, their altars are like the stone heaps beside the furrows of the field. Now Jacob fled to the land of Aram, and Israel worked for a wife, and for a wife he kept sheep but by a prophet the Lord brought Israel from Egypt, and by a prophet he was kept. Ephraim has provoked to bitter anger, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and bring back his reproach on him. Okay, pretty short reading today, but the main thing the two see is obviously the overarching theme of this whole thing is the judgment of Judah and of Israel, especially Israel today. They seem to be getting the brunt of the punishment here. But why is God so upset with them? He's upset with them for their harlotry, right? That's the overarching theme, and that goes on for the entire five chapters we read today. But in this scripture as well, you can't help but see the heart of God, in all of this. Because while he's pronouncing judgment against these people, he's also pronouncing how he's grieved by doing it. God has feelings, and his spirit is unsettled by the way that his people are acting. In a way, he's grieved to do this. Can't you tell? He doesn't want to punish Ephraim. He knows he must because he must satisfy his justice, and he cannot allow sin to go unchecked because that's the way he is. But yet you see such language of, why are you doing this? I don't want to do this to you. I have given you so many warnings for generations and generations. I've given you all the opportunities to repent. I have taken care of you for all this time, and yet you still disrespect and treat me poorly. You do not give me the reverence I deserve. But I must do this, but know that I am not happy in doing this. Know that I do not want to punish my children. I do not want to cause pain to my children, but this is how you're going to learn, so it must be done." As a parent, I understand this very well. I don't like punishing my kids. I don't like taking away privileges or spanking them, especially if one child is repeatedly being bad, and I have to give him repeated spankings. I feel like I'm abusing him, almost. I'm not, but that's what it feels like. And in the same way, God is having to do the same kind of punishment on his people because they won't learn the lesson. And then the next generation will learn the lesson. They'll be good. But then the generation after them will go back to the old ways. And then the cycle just keeps repeating. We need to be cycle breakers, because we are no different from Israel and Judah. We are also idolaters. We are also adulterers in our own right. Why? Because we get carried away by the lusts of the world, and we get carried away by the things that entice us, and we prostitute ourselves out to them. We are no better than them, so we can't judge this nation. So in the same way, why do we do this to ourselves? We need to be cycle breakers. We need to break the cycle of foolishness in our lives, and of addiction, and of all these things that come through generational curses, if possible, by God's grace. We need to pray against the evil that we commit, and we need to repent and stay strong in the Lord. But let me tell you this, the temptation is never going to go away. It's going to intensify, actually, because Satan sees that you're being strong, and so he will increase the attack, The more godly you are, the more attacked you will be. It shouldn't bother you, though. You can tune it out. You can ignore it, and you can overcome it through God's power alone, not through your own struggles. You can fight it all day long, and you will lose every single time. It requires the strength of God in your life and his providence. So briefly, let's look at what's going on if there's anything that stands out. So in chapter 8, it mentions the calf in verse 5. If you recall, during the days of Jeroboam, Jeroboam erected two golden calves in two different areas of his territory, one in Dan, and I think the other one was in Bethel, and they used those to worship. Very much similar to how Aaron Built the golden calf on Mount Sinai. Israel is sowing their wind of idolatry and they'll be reaping the whirlwind of destruction according to what God is saying. So, this golden calf is what they worshipped, and you can go back to 1 Kings chapter 12 if you'd like to see that. But often you'll see Beth Avon being referenced here instead of Bethel. So Beth is basically house, and El being God. So Beth-El is the house of God, right? That makes sense. But then he calls it Beth-Avon. Beth-Avon means the house of horrors. And so he's calling it the house of horrors because, yeah, it carries God's name on it, and they still are supposed to be using it for worship, but they're using it for their idols. And so it's a house of horrors. So then here comes a contradiction, or at least it looks like a contradiction. So when you go to verse 13, it says that they will return to Egypt. But then yet later in Hosea, it said that you will not return to Egypt. You will go to Assyria. So is that a contradiction? God is saying here, you will go to Egypt. And then the other one, he's saying you're not going to Egypt. Which one is it? we know from history that they went to Assyria. So why would God say that they're going to go to Egypt? It is a spiritual matter. It is a matter of in the same, almost like in the same vein, right? So God would reverse their deliverance from Egypt and send them back into captivity. That's what he's alluding to. He's not saying literally going to go back to Egypt, but just how I... I took you out of Egypt, I'm going to put you back into slavery just like you were in Egypt. So it's symbolic of what kind of a life they're going to live rather than geographically where they're going to live. Now, to be fair, in chapter 9, verse 3, it does say that Ephraim will return to Egypt and some actually did go. So it is not only literal, but it's also symbolic. Many did go to Assyria, and that is a fact, but some did go to Egypt. We saw that also in Second Kings chapter 25. But the main thing is, is in that both of these lands, they would eat unclean food, and they would be unable to keep their festivals and the ordinances of God. They've never cared for them up until now, but they still can't go to it because they are in a foreign land, and they will not be allowed to do it. Now, in verse 9, Hosea mentions the evil being compared to the days of Gibeah. So, I was wondering what that was, so I looked it up, and this is referring to the book of Judges, uh, chapters 19 through 21, where, if we may recall, it's been some time, but That was when the tribe of Benjamin was in great homosexuality and there was a woman that was left outside as they were approaching this visitor who came into town and they brutally assaulted this woman until she died. And then he sent a piece of her to all the different tribes of Israel, which is disgusting. All of it is disgusting. And then the entire group of Israel went to war against Benjamin, and they almost annihilated Benjamin, but they barely spared him. There's only a handful of Benjamites left at the end of it. That's what it's referring to. The reality is that the evil that is going on in the nation right now is compared to those days when Benjamin was completely depraved and was almost annihilated. So it's referring to that. Verses 10 through 17 talk about how at the the beginning of the nation, God found his people to be like refreshing grapes in the wilderness. They were sweet, they were delicious, they were comfort to cool the body. But then they turned to immorality at Baal Peor, which you can find in Numbers chapter 25, and they defected at Gilgal, and this is where they proclaimed Saul king, which was, again, against God's will. God's will was not for them to establish a king like all the other nations. They want, He wanted God himself to be the king. That was always to be the intention. So this is what he's talking about here. How they have been instrumental in doing everything contrary to God's word. So you have this combination of idolatry with Baal worship that we see, and then the desire for human kings instead of God, and this just destined the people to become wanderers among the nations, as it says in verse 17. This is the end result. You wanted this so badly, but this is what the end result is going to be. Chapter 10 really reminded me of every other nation in the world, including the United States right now, even Canada as well. Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made. The richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. Their heart is faithless. Now they must bear their guilt. I just read that and it reminded me of how true that is. Think about where in the world you have the most beautiful of scenery, when you have the most luxuriant land. When I think of the most luxuriant land where the weather is always fair, things are very fertile, and just everything is so beautiful, I used to think of California that way. California has so much natural beauty to it and has so much fertility, at least it used to. A lot of it's been burned down because of the wildfires, and I think part of that is divine punishment, but that's debatable. But when you look at a map of America and you identify where the hotbeds of the darkest depravity in the nation is, you see a common thread. It's always in the places where it is the most fertile of land, the be- most beautiful Forested areas, the places that have the most natural resources. There's some truth to it that the more prosperous a land, the more corrupt it gets. I don't know why, but that's the way it is. I mean, obviously this doesn't apply to everywhere because there are some places in the United States that are very nice to live in, and yet they're not corrupt. But the ones that are the worst right now happen to be some of the most luxuriant ones. So it makes me wonder if the materialism is a part of what has caused them to go astray, thinking that, oh, we are so rich, we have so much beauty here, we we basically just take everything for granted. And I think that there's something to do with that. Maybe it is the fact that we take things for granted and are not appreciative and grateful for what we have. Isn't that how it is with money, too? It seems like the more money we have, the less grateful we get. So it makes me wonder if this is not what it's talking about here. And this is God's command for Ephraim at this time, but it's also a command for us as well in verse 12. Sow with a view to righteousness. Sowing, as in the activity of working, Right? What you invest your time in, what you invest your energies and attention in. so with a view to righteousness. Reap in accordance with kindness. That should be the natural result, right? Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness on you. It is always time to seek the Lord and he promises that he will cause you to prosper if you do seek him. That doesn't mean all your problems will go away, but he promises you will be successful. Chapter 11, verse 1, is used as a reference of the Messiah. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. If you recall the story when Jesus was a baby, the angel told Joseph to go to Egypt because Herod was trying to kill all the the young boys of the land to try to kill the Messiah. So he fled to Egypt. And they stayed in Egypt until the angel told them to go back. And so that's that same understanding, like, out of Egypt I called my son, and quite literally he called the Son of God out of Egypt. Now, here's where you start seeing that part where I'm talking about how, where the Lord doesn't want to punish Ephraim like he deserves. Because like you see in verse 8, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? As in, you're my child. Why would I want to give you up? How can I make you like Adma? And how can I treat you like Zeboim? Those particular ones are important to understand where that comes from. Because they we're in Deuteronomy chapter 29, and as a reference, and they were destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah. That's why they're mentioned here. They were destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah as collateral damage from whatever happened to them. They were close enough nearby to where they were destroyed as well. This judgment is imminent, but God would one day roar like a lion to summon his young, and Israel will tremble with eagerness to come back and be restored to this land. That is why it talks about him being a lion in verse ten. And like he says in, at the end of verse eight as well, all my heart is turned over within me; all my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. He has done it before, and he doesn't want to do it again. You see that compassionate heart of God right there. He doesn't want to utterly destroy his child. He wants what's best for his people, but the people have just been so stubborn and don't want to listen. May we not be like this. We cannot. In chapter 12, it briefly talks about Jacob, and it recalls Jacob how he was as a man, and then how as the the nation kind of has imitated it. So Israel and Judah are deceitful, and they turn to the Lord, but then they depart from him. So God uses the illustration of Jacob himself, how from the womb, he was grabbing at the heel. In his maturity, he contended with God. He wrestled with the angel and prevailed. So it doesn't really say that very clearly in the book of Genesis, but it does say it here that it was the angel of the Lord. It was the preeminent Christ, I believe, to be the one that he wrestled in the wilderness. So again, he calls his people to return to your God. Repent and return. Observe kindness and justice and wait for your God continually. But until they do, they will be going into exile, and they will be in another land and they will be restricted from doing the things that they used to do. The prophets played a big role in this, and the main prophet that is being exalted here at the end of the chapter is Moses. He was the prophet that led them out of Egypt. So not only was Moses a great man and everything, but God is proclaiming here that Moses was also a prophet. It was never explicitly said in the word of the at the time in the book of Exodus and all that, that he was a prophet. But here it is saying that. And it makes sense, because what does it mean to be a prophet? It means you speak the word of God. And that's all Moses ever did, was speak the word of God. And with that, that's all that I have for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.